Uh, shout out to all the college students that are back. Put your hand in the air if you're a college student that has come home for the holidays. There's a few of you here. Yep, welcome back. Good to have you. I'll uh, pray for you. Uh, it's, uh, it's different coming home and sleeping in the bed you don't normally sleep in. And home is nice, but after a few days, you probably want to go back. Don't tell mom and dad that. Yeah, just, just be a good son or a good daughter. Yeah. Okay, we got a lot of people traveling already, so uh, please, in your daily prayers, uh, uh, include uh, prayers for those that you know that are on the highways and byways and those that are out of town visiting. Um, my family and I will head back to Kansas City uh, next Sunday, probably afternoon, evening, and spend that uh, week uh, around New Year's back with our family for four or five days. So we're kind of looking forward to that. Really haven't been back much this last year. It's been just too busy. So I've got some family that have come to visit us, but that's the way it goes. So, and uh, when you got three teenagers at home, and that's just life. Okay, uh, while you're finishing up as well, uh, a shout-out uh, uh, to last Sunday's uh, children's Christmas program. That Was that not just marvelous? Uh, thanks to all of our teachers, uh, staff, and musicians. That was uh, just a, an absolute delight. And uh, how blessed it is to hear uh, God's Word and that faith uh, sung and spoken of by our children and uh, something to uh, work towards uh, continually and to give thanks for as well. Okay. The Lord be with you. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come, and help us by your might, that the sins which weigh us down may be quickly lifted by your grace and mercy. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, we are going to finish up uh, chapter 6 today in Marquardt's book on uh, baptism. And uh, where's Pastor Ullman at? Is he here? There is an R in Marquardt's name. Okay, so just ignore what I said last week. Um, so we are on page 98, uh, uh, top of the page if you have the book. Otherwise, we'll throw it up on the screen here. And I think you'll find for early service people... This is a really fitting section, and, and I would love you to think that I planned this all out, that we would be dealing with this question today from the text, but I didn't uh, give the Holy Spirit credit for that. Uh, late service people, uh, you'll see the connection between the gospel appointed for today and the propers and what we're discussing here uh, in this book. So let's uh, dive right into it. Uh, we're into the paragraph, sometimes people say, there we go. Sometimes people say, whether in effect or in these actual words, either Christ or baptism, or either faith or baptism. Raise your hand if you've ever had a discussion with someone uh, who separates baptism from faith or from Jesus. Have you ever had? I've had that before, right? So, so baptism in a low view, which just goes back to, to page 92. He talked about this a little ways back. A low view of baptism is that you know, to put it on the same level or platform or stage as Jesus or as that being holy, now nah, you can't do that. Okay, so those that would hold to a low view of baptism would say that baptism is just a just an outward action, an, ex, an external sign. It doesn't really do anything. It's important, yes, but really only kind of in a traditional you know, in the same way that you kind of have some traditions this week for your Christmases, 
okay? But to be fair, it really wouldn't break Christmas completely, right? If you, if you, if you didn't have a few of those things. So in, in, in my family, I'm used to always having lefsa and krumkaka. Raise your hand if you know what lefsa and krumkaka is. Just one of you. Oh, a few of you, yeah. So lefsa is like a northern version of a tortilla <laughs> made out of uh, potatoes, basically, uh, and kind of baked on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a griddle. And the way our family would always have it is just uh, put butter, real salted butter, Okay? Don't let your wife know you're doing that or your doctor. Real salted butter, lather it up, and then take sugar and the best sugar you can get and just sprinkle the you-know-what out of it. And a little bit of cinnamon, cinnamon's not bad too. And then you roll it up, right? And, and, and then you just eat it. And that's, that's good. Now, you can do a lot of different things with left, so there's different traditions. Uh, uh, crumb caca is like a waffle cookie that's like rolled into kind of like a cone, right? At least that's how we always had them. And, uh, and the nice thing about Krumkaka, I think they make the best ice cream cones, actually. They're a little, they're a little more brittle. They're kind of fragile. Um, but uh, So when, when I don't get those things for Christmas, it doesn't feel like it's quite as much Christmas, but it's still Christmas. You see that? Uh, and so this whole thing with, 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 with baptism is, it, it's, it's more than just Lefsa and Krumkaka. It's like, it is Christmas, right? Baptism is very important, okay? And it's not just some minor tradition that Christians have thrown in there. Um, and so what we're going to get into today is a little bit of discussion of John's baptism with water. Um, Marquardt isn't going to go too far into history, uh, but suffice it to say that, that a washing with water was, was very common, not only by other pagan religions, but if you're studying, uh, the Levit studying Leviticus with us on Wednesday mornings or have studied it before, uh, you know that there is a ritual washing that is very important surrounding the tabernacle. Okay? Um, the uh, uh, burnt offerings uh, were to be washed at the basin to clean them out. Uh, the priests would literally have to strip down and wash in the basin, basins, strip down naked in the temple courtyard with, you know, There'd be moms that would be probably covering the eyes of their children, um, and the children, you know, the priests were to, to completely be washed before they were to go into uh, the the holy place uh, and and for their service there. Um, and so th there was a washing that was very important. This uh, the the stone water jars that Jesus used at his first uh, uh, miracle, the wedding at Cana. Those jars were for purification rites before the wedding. Some people don't know that. So he takes this water that has been used, not just like soap and water type washing, but washing that was part of a ritual, and now uh, turns that into wine. And of course, all that is foreshadowing how he will uh, certainly take simple wine and turn it into his blood, but it also foreshadows how simple water in baptism uh, now becomes a life-giving flood when it's connected with the Word of God, okay? So you've got lots of different connections uh, with that. So uh, let's get in here uh, to a little more of Marquardt. So these uh, dichotomies of either Christ or baptism, either faith or baptism, these amount to false alternatives, though, uh, false alternatives, though. They are attempts, and not very clever ones, to suggest that a high understanding of baptism violates either Christ alone or faith alone, Okay? And I remember my younger sister, uh, the, the, the minute she started dating a Reformed 
uh, gentleman, um, not Lutheran. Um, I remember sitting outside uh, our house and talking with her in the wee hours of the morning. She was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran, raised with a very high view of baptism. And now all of a sudden, she was being um, assaulted with all these other views of baptism, and she'd never really kind of wrestled with that before. And I remember one of the questions that her uh, boyfriend, who became fiancé, who became her husband, uh, raised was, uh, was exactly this, that, that, that baptism, as we understood it, completely violates Christ alone or faith alone. Okay, and I said, no, it doesn't, it doesn't do that at all. Okay, uh, and so when you have some of these discussions with other people, be prepared for some of these avenues and, and now arm yourself with a little bit of scripture, uh, you know, to, to deal with that. Okay, of course it is Christ alone who saves us, but he has chosen to use baptism as a means. And so that's where we go with it. Yes, Justification occurs here, right? Through him, incarnation, God in the flesh made manifest, through Jesus' offering as the sacrificial lamb for uh, his absolute perfect fulfilling of God's holy law, which is required of all people, right? So when God the Father said, be perfect, be holy, as I, your Father in heaven, am perfect or holy, Jesus comes and does that because you and I can't, okay? And because of his perfect life, because of his sacrificial death, um, because of, of, of his fulfillment, both actively and passively, you and I now are justified, declared legally not guilty. Justification, just as if I had no sin. Justification, all that is done through Jesus, okay? And now what he has earned then is distributed and given through baptism. Baptism then becomes a means. How do we know that? He says so. And Christ himself commands it. Go and make disciples of all nations. How are disciples made? Baptizing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, and coupled with that is not just bap- baptizing, which is why we don't fly over the whole globe you know, with C-130 tankers and sprinkle water and have pastors or anybody just saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because teaching now is to follow that, okay? And so it needs to be done uh, in, in, in that manner, okay? So, of course, it is Christ alone who saves, but he's chosen to use baptism as a means. Nor is there any competition at all between baptism and faith. Baptism is God's giving means, while faith is our taking means, Right? So faith, remember, comes from hearing uh, the Word of God. Uh, Faith can come even to a little baby in the womb, um, as we see with John the Baptist, who rejoices in his mother's womb uh, at uh, the announcement of of Christ, who is in Mary's womb. Um, And so faith now, uh, faith grasps, faith grabs hold of these gifts now that God gives. So faith grabs hold of baptism. So when faith doesn't grab hold of baptism, okay, um, you're, you're missing out. You're, you're, not getting the whole, you're not getting the whole kit and caboodle, okay, that Christ has offered, okay? Uh, so those that reject baptism in terms of it being a means or have a very low view of it, yes, are still Christians, still justified, okay? Um, so don't fall into the trap that, uh, you know, oh, if, if you don't have a, a high view of everything or you're not Missouri Synod Lutheran, you're going to hell, don't, don't fall into that trap. Let, let Jesus be the judge, okay, of those things. Certainly point out and speak to error, but, but faith alone saves, okay? 
So will there be other, quote, people who have died in other denominations in heaven? And the answer is, and you better believe this, absolutely yes. Okay. Um, why then, you might say, do we trouble ourselves with all this? And I would say, because Jesus says so. <laughs> so a matter of faithfulness now is a matter of drawing lines in the sand and speaking and practicing that, and also because when there is false teaching and error, there are those that, that will fall away. Now, the Lord knows all that, okay? And he will provide, and not one whom Jesus has appointed for salvation, who the Father has appointed, will be lost. So this is where the doctrine of election becomes very comforting. But that doesn't mean that we throw everything else out with it, which is what happens sometimes in Lutheran circles, okay? Uh, that we simply just, you know, <laughs> well, it's all going to work okay. And then we become either universalists, uh, and then we, 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 we start diving into uh, syncretism of, of seeing two things together that aren't at all the same um, and saying that, well, yeah, Muslims... And, and Jews and Lutherans and Christians, all we all worship the same God. No, we don't. Okay? Uh, or unionism, where uh, error is allowed to stand, uh, you know, next to truth, uh, which God does not allow as well. Uh, read about the prophets of Baal and Elijah and see how that story works. Uh, read about uh, Jesus uh, casting, uh, being righteously angry with the money changers in the temple right? You never see pictures of Jesus in the wall of church with a whip in his hands, do you? Right? Uh, driving out the false doctrine and the teaching in the church. Because that's not a Jesus we want to relate to, right? So, um, so we, we need to make sure we grasp everything here uh, from Scripture as well. Okay. Any questions, comments? I'm, I'm poking the bear just a little bit, hoping a few of you might raise your hand. And, but you're good for now. Okay. All right. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Everybody say, woohoo. Say, I've got spirit. Yes, I do. I've got spirit. How about you? So the Pentecostal movement, um, most of us that, that are, are uh, you know, in our 40s or below, we, we were kind of born into this but haven't necessarily lived through it, although we have lived through some of the effects of it. Uh, some of you that are, that are older than that in your 50s and older, uh, when I say Pentecostal movement, if you've been around the church, you would know all about that, Okay. Uh, my parents were kind of Lutheran hippies, um, yeah, and uh, so so they were they were you know born raised baptized uh, Lutheran. Uh, my mom uh, from uh, the northern churches, uh, Swedish and uh, uh, Norwegian, um, which uh, had some Pietistic tendencies and errors, and most of those have uh, delved into the convoluted world of the ELCA, which don't get me started on that, and. Uh, my father was a uh, Missouri Synod way back. Uh, uh, descendants from the Piepenbrink family trace back to churches in Germany that somehow managed to um, avoid the Prussian Union. So uh, hopefully here in about a year and a half when we take the Lutheran Heritage Tour, uh, and I made the mistake of telling Pastor Feeney that that was part of my history, and, and I, I got a couple of books. Oh, yeah, you've met, Okay. So, and I haven't had time to do all that research yet, but he's, he's got me started, so I need, I need to follow up with some of that. And somehow we're related again, but I forget how. Um, so, he'll be back here in, in, a, in a, what, two weeks, by the way. So, uh, baptism uh, for a grandson on January 5th, and asked him to preach that Sunday. So, if you're able to be here, uh, come and welcome uh, him and Solvay back. Uh, uh, they both should have nice tans, so... 
But um, uh, he's doing great work down there, um, and uh, so I don't want to take away from that. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful teacher and uh, pastor as well. Um, okay, so back to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So Pentecostal, and since 1961, charismatic, okay? Uh, and, and, and charismatic is, is a really weird amalgamation of a word, right? Charis uh, is basically Greek, uh, uh, grace in Greek. Let me spit that out. Um, and so, so, so charismatic becomes this am, uh, uh, amalgamation of, 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 you know, everything having to do with the Holy Spirit, right? And not only that, it's you feeling like you've been baptized. It's you feeling like you have the Holy Spirit. And not only that, trying to identify some concrete ways that you have been given the Holy Spirit. And, of course, all of this is outside of the most simple ways that Scripture says you have the Spirit, Okay. Do I have the Spirit? Well, if you've been baptized, you should simply say, yes, you've got the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, now we've tread into some unfamiliar waters as well within Lutheranism. And some of that is even kind of during the rite of confirmation. Um, when they started uh, making a new liturgical color for confirmation, they made it red, like Pentecost. didn't used to be historically. Why? And we've got a few pastors with us. Did we change red for Confirmation Sunday, pastors? Do you remember any of your history of where the Missouri Synod went with this? That now you would get what at Confirmation? The Holy Spirit. As if you're going to get more Holy Spirit than you already have. Now just stop and think about it, right? And so the Roman, you know, Rome has gone down this path for centuries, Right in terms of all their extra sacraments, right? So if you're ordained, that's a sacrament, which basically means you get more blessings, Jesus, Holy Spirit, than anybody else. Same thing with uh, taking vows of celibacy uh, to become a monk or a nun, uh, you know, holy orders, if you study the Lutheran confessions and you look at that. Uh, and that became attached to relics. And, and even for marriage, right? In the Roman church, marriage is a sacrament. So now, you know, if you're not married, well, sorry, you're missing out. So if you want to get all that out, and we say, wait a minute, you have everything you need in baptism, okay? So, so confirmation should be rightly a remembering of your baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, absolutely. Amen. But now that confirmation becomes now, oh, I publicly confess my faith. See, this, this is the result of some of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. Now here I am publicly confessing my faith, and, and I've got a graduation gown on. I've achieved all that. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I've got as much Holy Spirit as the adults do now, right? And so, so be very careful with that. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't think it ever intended and started out that way, uh, but we have little things that some of us have grown up with that kind of looking back on, oh, maybe we should emphasize something a little differently there, okay? And, and the next chapter, by the way, after baptism here is going to be on the Lord's Supper, right? So when you think back to your confirmation, what was the most important thing? Your public testimony and, and, and all of the lefsa and crumkaka that went along with it, all the other stuff, or was the most important thing receiving the body and blood of Jesus, I can't answer that for you. I mean, I can answer that for me. But we can kind of look at that within the Missouri Synod to see where the most important things are, right? Are our marbles in the right? You got it. Okay. All right, let's get back here. I'm still poking the bear today. I'm kind of riled up. So, um, let me just read that phrase again. 
sentence. Pentecostal and since 1961, charismatic churches and teachers hold that in addition to the sacrament of baptism, which they call water baptism, there now is also a spirit baptism or a baptism in the Holy Spirit, of which speaking in tongues is the usual sign. The second or spirit baptism often happens to people after they have already become Christian believers and have received water baptism. So my parents met because, uh, back to the Lutheran hippie thing, you wanted to hear about that, right? Um, so raised both, I'm, I was going to get to it, uh, you know, raised Lutheran, but through the 60s became convinced that the church was losing all the youth. The youth were not coming back after confirmation. Sound familiar? It's always been a problem, folks. Always been a problem. Okay? I'm not sure that it's any more of a problem now, and people might disagree with me on this, and yes, I have looked at statistics, any more than it was 500, 1,000, or 1,500 years ago. Okay? It's part of the training in the faith. It's part of the discipline. uh, It's part of that progression from, you know, a young adult to full adulthood, um, and uh, it's, it's a wide variety of things. But long story short, my parents got involved with an organization known as Lutheran Youth Encounter. Raise your hand if you've heard of Lutheran Youth Encounter. And, uh, and wonderful intent. Uh, the, the goal was to simply try uh, and, uh, and, and do some youth work by means of music, right? So we're 60s and 70s, which was a great, it really was. It was a good time for music. Uh, that's actually most of the stuff I listen to. It's kind of weird. Uh, probably because that's what my parents. My mom, very musical, plays guitar, piano, plays the the lyre and the flute, and she's got like ten of these recorders. And uh, anyway, so she grew up. Dad doesn't have a musical bone in his body, um, and uh, I mean he'll he'll sing, but you don't want to be standing right next to him when he does that. <laughs> um, but but he'll 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 sing and, and does a pretty good job. Um, and uh, and and my younger brother of all of us kids, he's he got my dad's musical non-genes, so otherwise the rest of us can carry a tune and play instruments. And so long story short, he and mom met, you know, through this encounter, um, and, and, but, but there were different people that were part of this movement, and there were some that had just a, a wonderful and a commendable goal of trying to connect to the youth, right, through music. And so to come to these churches and try and generate now a little bit of interest, um, and I think that was all good, but there was another part of it that was our churches need more spirit. We don't have enough Holy Spirit in our Lutheran churches. Our churches are full of dead, old people who stand and sing like this. Lord, have mercy up. And that, that just wasn't good enough. Okay, now, of course, it's a false dichotomy again. Think about what we're talking about with baptism. So we need to get more Holy Spirit into that. So this began then in the Missouri Synod, and we're always Johnny-come-latelys to other stuff, and perhaps rightly so. This became the rise now of contemporary worship in the Missouri Synod. And I hate to say it, but my family was directly involved in leading the Missouri Synod down a not-so-good path that still exists today. So I traveled around in the back of a VW bus uh, from when I was, you know, uh, a baby up until three, four years of age. We'd go to congregations, where, you know, the pastors that were willing to have kind of a special service or a concert. We'd have the bonfires. We'd sing Kumbaya. We always had s'mores. Um, and, and, of course, through some of the music and the musical texts, okay, error and false doctrine was also introduced. Okay, 
Uh, now, my dad knows where I stand on this, so we, we, we still, my parents and I still talk about this a little bit. They've tended to become a little more conservative over the years, which is thankful for. I'm kind of the conservative black sheep, you know, the rebellious son um, that's, that has become about the liturgy and that sort of thing. Um, but when you fail to emphasize where the Holy Spirit comes, you start looking for God and His work in other places where He hasn't promised it, Okay. And you have to be very careful with that, okay? Um, you know, we, we have some great freedom and things that we certainly can do, but we need to be careful, uh, you know, with listening ears. It's kind of like, you know, having, having you know, raise your hand if you've had little kids and they have repeated things that you have said <laughs> that you wish you wouldn't have said on the golf course, Never. In the garage, <laughs> right? Uh, argument amongst parents. I mean, you know, it, it's amazing. And so, so we have to be careful with that in the church as well. Okay. Enough about that. The first thing to be observed here, next paragraph, is that the whole scheme of two different baptisms, one with water and the other with the Spirit, is quite foreign to the New Testament. So there we have uh, pointedly, and let's read it together, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This one baptism in the New Testament is neither a water only nor a spirit only, but a water and spirit baptism. Okay, And you can go back to that table that he put of the high-low view back on page 92 if you want to refresh your memory. If the New Testament taught two different sorts of baptism, they could never speak simply of baptism or being baptized, but would have to specify which one was meant each time. So when I was down in Arkansas uh, where we, we had our... Yo. Hold it up like a good Pentecostal, Neil. Put your head down and your hand up like this. And maybe the Holy Spirit will call on you, Neil. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Oh. Right. Okay, hold on to that question because Marquardt actually uses that text here on the next page, so which hopefully we'll get to in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> I don't want to get too far ahead, okay? Uh, so, so, so the Spirit comes, okay, so water baptism, we would say, Holy Spirit comes in that way. Um, Pentecostals, and that's a big loaded term, charismatics, big loaded term, would say, uh, you need more than that, that's not enough, so down in Arkansas, we had a gigantic Pentecostal church across the street, um, and I remember talking with the pastor who was one of the largest real estate moguls in the area down there. Everything that went in the collection plate actually went in his pockets, okay? He was the prophet, the pastor of that church right across the street. And, uh, and I remember meeting with him at some point, and one of his questions was, have, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Why, yes, I was, Back in January of 1974. Oh no, no, no! He said, "That's oh, I know you, you Lutherans. You're you're like the Catholics and those other baby baptizers. I mean, have you had the Holy Spirit descend upon you? Has He spoken through you?" I'm like, well, yeah, He He does quite often, actually. <laughs> I'm a pastor. <laughs> every time I read the Bible, every time I preach. Um, and not only that, because I'm a Christian, I believe the Holy Spirit is at work in me. Every time that I, 
you know, uh, uh, forgive my wife, my children, my best buddy. I mean, I, I, you know, it's all part of Luther's mass of God. And, you know, he didn't want to hear anything about that. He wanted to know about when I had my second baptism, my baptism by the Spirit. And because I hadn't had that yet, I wasn't truly a Christian. I was missing out, he said, on God's gifts. Okay? Now, what was funny was my other Southern Baptist friend who was at a very large church, uh, Geyer Springs, right up the road. He and I uh, helped uh, uh, a few other people actually start a rotary club down in Arkansas. And a great guy, still email him back and forth. He contends that I'm not saved because I haven't been properly baptized. So here I've got one of my buddies telling me that I'm not saved because I wasn't immersed. I was only sprinkled, and that doesn't count. And then I've got another pastor on the other side of the road who says I'm not saved because I haven't had a second baptism by the Holy Spirit. I haven't spoken in tongues, which is where your question is going, correct? Okay. So which is it? Okay. Do we have everything we need in the simple baptism that God gives us, or should we seek after other gifts? And that becomes the question. Okay. And so hang on to where we go with this. Okay, you'd be patient with me? Thank you. You're sitting right by my wife, so I hope you will be patient with me. Okay. Um, so, nor do, let's see, where, if the New Testament taught two different sorts of baptism, then it could never speak simply of baptism or being baptized, but would have to specify which one was meant each time. And we don't see that in the New Testament. So yet the New Testament speaks quite simply of, quote, baptiz baptism and baptizing because there's only one baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Nor does the New Testament, I want you to think about this, know the fantasy of two different classes of Christians. A first class consisting of those who, quote, have tongues or have, you know, uh, uh, prophesied or, or you know, spoken by the Spirit in that sense, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then another, a sort of economy class with only ordinary faith and water baptism. Okay, And here's what needs to be emphasized. There is only one holy, baptized, priestly, royal people of God. And that's the body of Christ, for which there is no division. Okay, uh, Neither Greek, nor Jew, nor slave, neither male, nor female. And people misunderstand that passage as well, as if we're some sort of androgynous or pick your sex that sort of thing, pick your gender. No, this is all about what God in Christ has done for you through the Word and how you're made part of the body of Christ, period, through these means. So a shallow reading of texts like Matthew 3.11 may indeed give the impression that there are two different kinds of baptisms. And you don't have Matthew 3. Where are you at? Oh, you're doing the Google Chromecast. Too much technology for me. Can you pull Matthew 3.11 back up? Oh, you've got it. Oh, no, you don't. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read a little further ahead while he works out. So a shallow reading of texts like Matthew 3.11 may indeed give the impression that there are two different baptisms, but the confusion disappears, however, the moment it is realized that the contrast here is not between the sacrament of baptism and a Pentecostal experience, but rather, and here's the kicker for today's text, between John's baptism and Christ's own work, culminating in Pentecost. Right? Today we no longer have John's baptism, nor do we live before Pentecost. We have the complete Christian sacrament of baptism with all the power and blessing of Pentecost in it. Okay, now I'm going to unwrap that in just a second. 
So let's, let's read uh, 3.11 together. You ready? Jesus said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I, mean, I guess Jesus said it because he was Holy Spirit. But that's John the Baptist, obviously, right? So leave that up there. So I baptize you with water for repentance, right? So here's John's baptism. And, and, and now there is coming one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Oh, so John's baptism was a water baptism. But now, if you understand it the way the Pentecostals do, you need to have what? The baptism of spirit and fire, okay? But here's what happens. When you start to read yourself into the text instead of reading Jesus into the text, right? Right? So, in other words, when you start to have your own kind of series of Where's Waldo books, where you read the Bible in terms of, hey, where's Marcus? What does this passage have to say to Marcus, right? You know, and and we become the Waldos that we're looking for then we totally miss what the Bible's all about. Because this is really all about Jesus. Okay? So when Jesus is speaking this here uh, in, in Matthew chapter 3, what hasn't happened yet? Pentecost. So Jesus now fulfills everything. And so when you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you receive everything that Jesus is and has done. So there's not a separation between those two. And this is where it's so important to understand the fulfillment of Scripture, how Jesus fulfills the prophecies, fulfills even his own words that are prophetic uh, ahead of time. Okay, Um, So Marquardt goes on. As usual, we get the depth and dimension in St. John's Gospel. So here John the baptizer is quoted as contrasting his own baptism with the work of Jesus, the one who is baptizing in the Holy Spirit. But this has nothing to do with tongues. It's not even a direct reference to Pentecost, which, which lay some three years in the future. The present sense he is baptizing means that this baptizing the Holy Spirit was something then already happening in the work of Jesus. As God the Son, Jesus had the Spirit, not by measure. So from one perspective, his entire work may be described as winning for death-bound human flesh the heavenly gift of the life-giving Spirit of God. Okay? So what happens then is we start to say, okay, did John's baptism save? How would you answer that? Did John's baptism give salvation? Yes. Okay. Um, let, me, let me couple something else from the Old Testament and, and ask you this. So by circumcision, on the eighth day for all little boy babies... What was the promise? What did they receive? What did they receive? Pastors? Circumcision granted salvation. Absolutely. Okay. Now, do we need to circumcise any longer? You can for medical reasons. Okay. That's kind of what your doctor will tell you. But you have the choice. You don't have to have your kids circumcised. Okay. The younger boys in the room are crossing their legs right now. Let's not talk about that. Okay. Um... But we don't have to circumcise him any longer. Why? This was an issue in the early church. Okay, with, with the Judaizers, um, uh, there's some uh, stuff we have between Peter and Paul with circumcision. Why, why, why was it an issue? Because those that had grown up Jewish had been taught what? 
circumcision saves you. But now Jesus has come and done what? Fulfilled the law. So now you no longer have to be circumcised, right? Salvation no longer is going to come through these means, but were those that were circumcised before received salvation? Yes. Were those baptized by John, a baptism of repentance, received the Holy Spirit and received salvation? Yes. And now here's the kicker, okay? Who baptized Jesus? <laughs> Jesus receives, if you want to call it this, John's baptism. And at that baptism, what happens? The heavens opened. A dove alights on top of Jesus, and God the Father speaks, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay? So everything that occurs now is all pointing forward to that which Christ will establish. He fulfills all of it. And so now the baptism now that Jesus, Jesus commands in Matthew 28 is all the baptism you need. And with it you receive all the gifts that go along with it that Christ has earned for you, including the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we don't pit John's baptism against Jesus' baptism. Okay? Uh, nor do we, and I, and I remember, <laughs> I've got some Arkansas stories. So I had a couple that came up to me right after I had moved down there, and, uh, and they said, oh, pastor, we have a special story to tell you. We have received a great blessing that we wish everybody could receive. We were baptized in the Jordan River. And we even brought some of the water home in a bottle, Jim and Marianne Roseberry. And, uh, um, and, and I, I bet they still tell this story. Uh, lo love them to death. Um, couldn't get past their Pentecostal ways. And, uh, and now because of that, we, we are much closer to God than the rest of you that have just been baptized. Now, they said it in a very nice way. Okay? Um, so now think of where this goes. Okay? Same thing with, you know, either how you're baptized or that sort of thing. You're going to throw me off track, but go ahead and ask your question. I honestly don't know how many times, so I'm not going to answer that. Not in the same way that we understand it. There, there was baptism in the Old Testament, and so we, we have some different references to that. Um, I mean, even amongst, like, I think in the, I don't know if it's in the Talmud, there's some references to some rituals you know, with, with, with baptizing, not in the same way that we understand it, but application of water uh, being not just a cleansing, but having some sort of spiritual or symbolic, uh, you know, a t you know uh, connection to that. Um, I mean, again, the word baptize simply means to apply water, right? It wasn't commanded in the Bible until when? Until John comes, who's still Old Testament, actually. <laughs> John, from the Holy Spirit. He was the last and greatest prophet. In the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. So, so John the Baptist, I don't want to take thunder out of a wonderful sermon the late service people are going to hear, uh, but John the Baptist was uh, Elijah who was to come. Um, so meaning he was a prophet, the last and the greatest. Uh, and so thus the Old Testament ended with John the Baptist, actually. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, everybody likes to know, what about the women? They're lost. They're going to hell. <laughs> I'm joking. Oh, man, this is going to be on the Internet. Um, so it's all part of the household. Okay? So, so, so the women, this is all patriarchal, which, again, is something that is still biblical and we've lost sight of even today. But I don't want to go any further than that right now. Um, and uh, so a husband shall leave, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his, his wife, his gunaikos in Greek, his, uh, his, his wife, not his girlfriend, his best friend or whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the two shall become one flesh. So now this one flesh union of a husband and a wife establishes now a new household uh, of which uh, the, the husband is to be the head uh, and serve before God in that way. Now, some um, husbands die, um, and so that, that office is, is vacated, and the, and the wife has to pick up some of that work. Um, some husbands and fathers are degenerates and don't do their job, and the wife has to do that. And I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but, uh, but I just want you to understand that uh, God is at work through all these things. Okay, uh, So for the women, they are saved by means of their... Um, Let's not use the word membership. Let's just say they're uh, familial um, by their connection to a household, right? And so that's why all of my you know, doctoral dissertation work has been like for voters' assemblies at a church, historically, it wasn't all individual votes. It wasn't when you turned 13 or 18 or 21 that you get a vote. It was households, Okay. Um, and, and, and it was always understood that the, the, the husband, the man of the house, uh, was casting a vote or rendering an opinion on behalf of the household. And like anybody else, he better know his constituents. Okay? Don't tell me in marriage the wife isn't in his ear. Okay? Or if he stands up at a voter's meeting and speaks something, that he's not going to hear about that if she's got a little different opinion. But, you know, you, 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 you serve together. And the husband's job is also to die for the wife as Christ died for the church, which also means sometimes putting her and perhaps even her opinions on things sometimes first. But we don't talk about it that way anymore, do we? Now we're just all individual. We're all just American Democrats. Everybody gets an individual vote. You don't have to worry about your household. Now, I took that away. You didn't intend to go, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but it's important to understand the connection to households and what it means to be a Christian and how we work together as Christians, okay? And we're not just all little autonomous islands, okay? Um, and uh, and I think, I think that's the, the devil's really been at work in our homes and marriages that way uh, and in our churches in other ways too. Did I answer that? Okay, anybody else got a really good, that was a good question. Oh, man, I really want to finish this. Okay, so let's see, where are we at? We are at... Pentecost. So from one perspective, Jesus' entire work uh, may be described as winning for death-bound human flesh the heavenly gift of the life-giving Spirit of God. The spiritfulness could not be released upon the human race until Christ's redemptive work had been completed and he had been glorified, John 7, 39. So Pentecost is the signal that all this has been fulfilled, that the spiritual treasures of life and salvation are now ready for distribution to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, verse 8. Right? So all these things now had to take place in order. We're getting there, Neil. Hold on. 
The real power of Pentecost is not the sound as of a mighty rushing wind, nor the tongues of fire, nor the strange languages. All these are what we would refer to as special effects. The real and permanent dynamic of Pentecost is the gospel. So what did the people hear in their own language that the apostles had never studied? They didn't have Rosetta Stone. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke the gospel, law and gospel, in the language uh, with the, uh, oh, let's see, is he here? Who did I just meet? We have a son of the congregation going to school down in Alabama. I don't know if he's with us here. And I asked his family as they were on the way out the door if he had picked up any of the southern, and he said, yeah, he's starting to say y'all a lot, <laughs> okay? Uh, and so, so the disciples now, not only in speaking the language, they also learned the dialects and all the other things that went along with it. So there were probably a few y'alls and you know, and that sort of thing. They, they, the Holy Spirit did that for the sake of the gospel. And all of that in the forms of preaching, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So this remains in the church to the end of time, even though the special effects of the apostolic age, and peculiar even then to the disciples, and not to every Tom, Dick, and Harry, uh, have long ceased. So speaking in tongues, every time that you speak, even the word, or read the Bible. And this is why I encourage you, say your prayers out loud at home. Read the Bible occasionally out loud at home. Do your devotions out loud. Why? So others in the house can hear, okay? But also because that word is authoritative. The devil, <laughs> the evil spirits, they can't read your mind. Only God can do that, okay? Now, they're much smarter than you, but speak that out loud because with that now comes the power, the didymus and exousia, the power and authority of the Word. The Word, the Word, the Word. Everything is in the Word. So when you share the Word with each other, with your children, with your co-workers, the gospel is at work. So we would simply say Pentecost continues through the Word, which is the sharing of the gospel. Now that one-time event or, and there are a couple other instances which Marquardt will reference, of the Holy Spirit being given to certain individuals for the sake of the spread of the Christian church at first. Okay, these are, these are special gifts. Uh, they're not promised to continue, okay? Nor do we see historically that they have, although some churches have tried to revive that, okay? And I told you the story many years ago when my dad took us to different churches because he was a Lutheran hippie and wanted us to be exposed to different religions, but thank you, Dad, for that. It was good in some ways. Um, and so we go to this one Pentecostal church and they all start dancing and singing and the floor is bouncing and I'm like, what's going on? This is not the liturgy. Um, you know, and then some lady starts freaking out, babbling all sorts of gobbledygook and, uh, and everybody stops and listens to and watches what she's doing and then, and then she sits down as calmly as before and then a guy stands up and says, I've been given the gift of, uh, of uh, interpretation of these tongues and, uh, and uh, Sister Mary's been looking for her lost car keys. They uh, fell behind her bedside table in her bedroom. Thus set the Holy Spirit. And then everybody stands up and sings, Hallelujah, praise God, because the Holy Spirit has shown her where her car keys are. Okay? Now, for them, that was a really big deal. They believed the Holy Spirit had did that. I would say evil spirit had done that. Why? Because Scripture also specifically tells, and Jesus does in his high priestly prayer and a few other places, that the Holy Spirit will testify to Jesus only. The Holy Spirit is not going to help you find your lost car keys. The Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus, okay, and to the truth of Scripture. And so that becomes the litmus test for testing the spirits, okay? 
And the Holy Spirit is going to talk about baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession, absolution. Okay? And how can it in so many of those churches where those things are also decried? Okay? Ignored. Okay. All right, I'm going to read real quick because we're going to finish this chapter. The usual Pentecostal guided tour of the book of Acts is designed to show that speaking in tongues or the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a normal stage of spiritual development to which every Christian ought to aspire. But a closer look at Acts does not bear this out. We notice that, quote, tongues or some visible manifestation of the Spirit occur not generally or indiscriminately, but that a few extensions of Pentecost occur in a handful of highly significant situations. Neil, pay attention. We find that these special occurrences, in fact, mark the transition of the gospel to a new stage of the missionary program given by the risen Savior himself, especially Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So we start with Acts 1.8, and then we have a mini-Pentecost when the gospel crosses into Samaria, Acts 8, 4-24, and again when it reaches the Gentiles in Caesarea, Acts 10.44-46, which I think is the one you're talking about. But if not, you'll email me and let me know, I'm sure. The only other occurrence is a special case of Acts 19, where it is a question of the superior, superiority of the full and permanent Christian baptism over the temporary provisional baptism of John. So the early church nationally wrestled with this. Just like the Jews wrestled with circumcision, there became the question of, oh, I was baptized by John. Do I need to be rebaptized? Or, you know, do we go back and do the baptisms like John did? Or do we do them now like Jesus has said? Which one? The necessity of these special demonstrations of the oneness of the Christian church, regardless of race and nationality, is evident from the great difficulty with which the great Apostle Peter learns this lesson and lets go of old prejudices and scruples. And that's part of the circumcision uh, debate they had. So in the post-apostolic church, we are to take Pentecost on faith, just as we take the resurrection on faith in the living gospel and sacraments of Christ. It is a sacrilege to suggest that humble believers in Christ, who are complete in him whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, either need or can have something supposedly more here on earth. Okay? So the sinner in you, you know, doubts that you have everything you need in your simple baptism, which most of you don't even remember. Perhaps you have pictures, perhaps you have a certificate, and that's why we do those things. But there's got to be more. And the answer is, you have everything already. Okay? All right. Good? Ha-ha, <laughs> we finished it. The chapter. All right, I'm sure you probably have some questions. We'll pick that up uh, next week. Write those down. Um, and uh, good, 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 good. Have a wonderful Christmas this week. If you're here in town, please come join us, 5 and 7 on, uh, on Christmas Eve. Uh, that's kind of candles and carols. Uh, and then this year we have an 11 o'clock p.m. Uh, divine service or midnight mass. We'll have the Lord's Supper offered on Christmas Eve now for the first time. Uh, so if you desire to partake of that, uh, come. And then Christmas Day, 10 o'clock. Uh, 5 and 7 are the same service. 11 o'clock is different texts, different hymns. 10 o'clock, different texts, different hymns. So if you come to one service and you didn't get to sing the hymn that you like, you need to come to the next service. And then if you don't get the hymn you want at that one, come to the next one. I guarantee you over the course of four services, we're pretty much singing all the hymns. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your gracious kingdom and teach us again to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.